Heavenly Father, we want to come before you, and first we wish to give you thanks for Mark and his life and everything that he has done. He was so committed here. He was part of our family, uh, Father, and we thank you for the time that we had with him. And we would ask uh, first for the family uh, that you would bring comfort, especially to Paula, uh, who is grieving over the loss of what was to her, her brother, and uh, Lord, there's so much to be done, so many arrangements to be made, and the arrangements aren't even finished with Kathy. And I, Father, I want to also give you thanks that Mark was able to outlast his mother, uh, that it wasn't the opposite. And uh, Father, we know that you are the one who sees all and knows all, and our days are numbered, and you know the very day that you are going to take us home to be with you. And so through all this, I would ask that you would help us to be sober-minded as far as this is concerned, that we could be here one day and gone the next. But Lord, mostly for uh, Brian and Rebecca as well, and the sister Denise, we'd lift them all up to you. Ask that you would give them wisdom, uh, clear-headedness as they deal with Mark's passing. Thank you, Father. Well, Father, as we uh, go on this evening, uh, we know that Mark would have said, ah, go on, have the study. And so, Lord, we will. And we had asked that you would help us to reflect back on the times uh, that we all have had with Mark, encounters, and pray that those could be used for the encouraging of the body uh, when his memorial takes place, his celebration of life. And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, bring many people together uh, for this purpose, those that he knew outside the church, the Sieblers and those from Pathways, I pray that you would uh, just bless the time that we will have in the future together with this. And until we see him again, Lord, I pray that you'd bring him to mind and to pray for his family in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, um, as far as the study is concerned, I skipped one. You guys know that I skipped one? Did you look at the syllabus? I went uh, from eschatology to cults, and I missed interpretation. Now, interpretation, <clears throat> it could be a real yawner uh, when it comes to how to interpret the Bible. But let me ask you something. <clears throat> is it pancakes or is it flapjacks? Pancakes. Uh, where is it that in order to turn left, you have to turn right. Frank? Isn't that the East Coast where if you want to make a left-hand turn, you have to go to the right? Michigan? Also New Jersey is like that? Is uh, Connecticut like that? Where you, you have to pull off the road? And so somebody from back on the East Coast or in Michigan, they would know that if you want to make a left-hand turn, you have to go to the right. And then you have to take this long turn, and then you cross the street is what you do. <clears throat> so um, is it baseball or football? Or excuse me, is it football or soccer? <laughs> the rest of the world, it's football, right? In the United States, it's soccer. So depending on where you are is how you interpret your environment. Depending on how you were raised, you will look at things differently. You won't look at them the same way. And when it comes to biblical interpretation, 
you have to know how to interpret the Bible, and you can't interpret it through your own eyes. There is a way uh, to do it. If you were given a small engine and you were told to repair it, different people would go at it differently. They would maybe take the whole thing apart or they would just look for the problem. But when it comes to biblical interpretation, when we come to difficult passages, like for instance, you guys have that handout that says the first scripture on there is Ecclesiastes 10.19. Now, many of you have been here for this before. Uh, Somebody want to read that verse? Anyone? Nice and loud. Now, that's a Bible verse, right? Do you believe that? You don't believe that that's true? <laughs> now, see, <laughs> she's narrowing it down here, how you interpret. You never read just a verse. You never read a verse you are supposed to read before and after. Now, when it comes to um, biblical interpretation, I want to make sure that we get this down. And the things that I'm going to tell you, you probably won't remember most of them. Uh, because I, I didn't write it down on your paper, a lot of the stuff that I'm going to say. I want to expose you to it. I want to make sure that you, you're you able to go, wait a second, I remember something about that. But if you want to study this more, I can get you notes on it. But I want to make sure that you guys, when you look at the Bible, you know how to read it correctly because there is a correct way and there is a wrong way to do it. And so I'm want to try to help you get this properly. Now, in order to properly do biblical interpretation, and you can take notes on your um, page that you have there, maybe on the back side of the one that you have. It's just one page where it's the fill-in, right? Okay, if you want to take some notes, you can take some on the back side there, and you can write down the scriptures and look at it. People try to interpret the Bible. I always... Uh, kind of laugh under my breath a little bit, chuckle when somebody that is on television tries to interpret the Bible uh, because they cannot interpret it properly. It is necessary that you have God's Holy Spirit in order to get the understanding of Scripture, especially in those areas that aren't given in a narrative form. A narrative form is just like reading a letter. It's like reading a play you talk in everyday English like that. There's nothing to interpret. You just understand what is being communicated. But Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, A man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Also, John 14, 26 says, But the counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, that was given to the disciples in order that they may write the Scriptures. Romans 8, verse 6 says, The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And so, in other words, if 
somebody who is an unbeliever reads the scriptures unless the Holy Spirit is prompting them for the understanding the understanding is going to be fleeting that's why people produce these documents discrepancies or contradictions in the Bible and I have some documents like that that I've collected over the years where they give a contradiction of things that they see and I gave you one a few weeks ago how long uh, were the Israelites captive uh, before they were set free, what? How many years does the Bible say? Do you guys remember? There are two listings. One is four hundred. The other is four hundred and thirty. Which is it? See that that's the problem. And somebody who read it would say the Bible just doesn't make sense. One is four hundred, and another one's four hundred and thirty. How do you interpret the Bible properly? How do you know to do that? For instance, uh, at the 144,000, how many thousand are taken from each tribe? 12,000 from each tribe. Do you think it's actually 12,000 or do you think that's rounded off? It could be either one. But if it gets to 11,998, in God's reckoning, it's still 12,000 because oftentimes God rounds things off in the numbers that are given. When he takes a census, usually the numbers are rounded off. They aren't specifically an exact number that's given, and people have a hard time with that. And somebody who doesn't know these things will misinterpret the Scripture and think that the Scriptures are filled with error. So you need the Spirit of God to interpret the Bible correctly. Anybody who is a believer has the Spirit of God, and they only need that to come to an understanding. But God also provides pastors and teachers to bring a fuller understanding. That's like Apollos, uh, who needed a little more understanding. He He needed to know a more excellent way. Secondly, we should examine the Scriptures to test the truthfulness of what we are taught. And this is in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now the Bereans were more noble in character than the Thessalonians because they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. You guys need to be examining me. If I say something that's incorrect, you need to tell me. If I haven't caught it or if I'm teaching something that is incorrect, I'm doing a disservice to the body of Christ. That's why you guys need to know it as well. And that's why the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Misinterpretation number three results from spiritual instability and ignorance of the scriptures. First Peter chapter, excuse me, second Peter chapter three, verse 14. Um, talk, actually verse 16. It's talking about the apostle Paul. Peter writes about him. He says, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. And so people who are unsaved will distort scriptures. Even people who are saved will do this very thing. Fourthly, we are encouraged to study the scriptures. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. <clears throat> to give you uh, an example of this. Uh, yes. The last one, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. <clears throat> when I started out teaching, yeah, I, I made mistakes, and I know some of those mistakes that I made. 
one of them had to do with uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was taught by my pastor that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the same as being saved. Then I went to the pastor's conference, and the pastor's conference with Pastor Chuck Smith and Ray Bentley and several others of the pastors up there would say, no, it's a second event. And so I'm, and I was teaching it that it was the same thing because that's what I learned from my pastor. Well, I went back and I started asking these pastors at the pastor's conference, can you please explain this a little more fully to me? And they would explain it. And then I went back to my pastor and said, it's not the same thing. It's two different things. And so we had a good Bible study about it after that. And so I was just ignorant. You know, I was teaching a Bible study, but I, I didn't know. I still don't know everything. But, you know, at that particular point, I was making an error. And so I had to go back and I had to correct that. <clears throat> and if you teach for any length of time, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make errors. And when you do, you just say, God's right. He's perfect. I'm not. And we make mistakes. But we want to make sure if we find out those mistakes, we never want to be so prideful that we, well, I'm not going to go back and say I made a mistake. No, we need to go back and say we made a mistake because it's God's word. It's very important. Now, uh, problems, there are always problems with interpretation. Uh, for instance, I call it the time gap. It's a different century. Things are different. Are things different from the 50s? <laughs> can i get an amen yes they are completely different well take a century back or two centuries or four centuries or a millennium you know you go back thousands of years things are going to be different and we want to interpret that in light of our experience today for instance what does it mean to heap hot coals upon someone's head see that was a phrase uh, that was used centuries ago, but we're, we've kind of lost the meaning of what that is. There's speculation as to what it means, but that's a biblical phrase. No, well, maybe mentally, that's one interpretation, mentally. To heap hot coals upon someone's head. For them, some of the Bible scholars say it meant to have them feel guilt is what it meant. But see, we would have no idea what that meant. Uh, can you guys think of a colloquialism that's like that or an axiom? Anything, any axiom at all? What? What, what was it? For instance, um, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Am I talking about birds? No, I'm not. But, if, you know, if you said that back then, would they know what you're talking about? And, and so they have, we have, I said this a couple of weeks ago, we have over 500 of these little axioms or proverbs that we say, and the meaning could escape somebody. Or if I said their hair was on fire. Was their hair on fire? Well, no. What, what does it mean well, now, see, that's one interpretation. Another one is they are totally mad and upset and just out of their mind and their hair is on fire, right? So <clears throat> we have to make sure that we don't take a phrase like that from Scripture and interpret it in light of our time, which is the time gap. Then there's the space gap or ge uh, geographical gap. What is happening to us here is not what was happening in Israel in the time gap. Israel is different 
than here. If you went to Israel today, the women would have to wear uh, long skirts. Uh, pants are verboten. Uh, you don't want to wear pants inside of the Jewish city. You want to have a skirt on. Uh, you may even want to have a scarf over your head. What do you have to wear here? Nothing. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, if you want to call them clothes. And so over there, it's different, and it was different back then as well. Uh, then there's the language gap. It, sometimes phrases don't transfer well from one language to another, especially in ancient language. And then a custom gap. Um, for instance, there's a gap in the, or there's a custom gap in the Middle East right now. If a woman gets raped in the Middle East, whose fault is it? That's right. It is her fault. And they would say well you got raped obviously because you were alone you weren't with a man of your own family and if you were with a man that wasn't part of your family it just serves you right and so they look at things differently and we have to have all of these things in mind so those gaps are time gap space gap language gap and customs gap then there is the theology difference um we have different bents now we've covered eschatology in our eschatological views here at this church, we are pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. If you miss that, you can get it on the uh, website. Pre-tribulational is, I believe Jesus Christ is going to come back before the tribulation and get his church and take his church to heaven for a period of seven years. I am premillennial. I believe Jesus Christ is going to come back according to his word and set up a literal thousand-year reign here on earth. It is not an allegory. It's given in a narrative sense in the book of Revelation, and we should interpret it as such. There are churches that do not believe that. I've already covered this in eschatology. So we have these different bents. One bent would be known as dispensationalism. Another bent would be reformed. Another bent would be Eastern excuse me, Eastern Orthodox or Neo-Orthodox theology. Neo-Orthodox theology and Karl Barth and, I, and uh, some of these other guys, I don't want to go too deep into that. There's just uh, Dominion Now theology that everything is getting better and God's going to come back when we have perfected just about everything here and he's going to set up his kingdom and we're just going to go on into eternity. There's that type of uh, view and covenant theology that God works by covenants. And so we have a particular lens that we put on when we look at the scriptures and we see through our theology. That's what we do. Other theologies, it, for instance, there's biblical exegesis. That means you take the entirety of scripture and you interpret something where it's not biblical eisegesis, where you have a view and you try to cram it into scripture and you find verses that fit your view. Uh, there's a difference in doing that. There is biblical theology, there's Christian apologetics, there's Christian theology, there's conservative Christianity, there's constructive theology, there's process theology, there's queer theology, there's black theology, there's feminist theology, there's liberal Christianity, liberal liberation theology, philosophical theology, philosophy of religion, political theology. And I didn't even give you an exhaustive list. And so you can just focus on one of these particular subjects and that will be your lens for which you look at things. For instance, constructive theology. <clears throat> People believe that there is a framework in which we must look at the Bible. Uh, to give you an example, uh, God declares himself as being love. God is 
love. God is merciful. God is kind. God is patient. And we know him by those attributes. You guys familiar with Picasso? I've talked about this before. You know how he paints? An eye is here. A nose is down here. And a hand is down here. The reason he painted that like that was because of his theology. Because when you talk about God in uh, prepositional statements, God is love, God is kind, God is just, all of those things, you're not knowing the entirety of God. You're knowing a fragment of God. That's why Picasso fragmented his paintings. Because he understood God as being fragmented. That's why he put these different body parts in different places. That's why he did it. And so when you're doing that, you see God in a particular way. Now, the people today, they don't see God in a lot of people today. They don't see God in these prepositional statements or propositional statements. They see God as one who changes, who is not absolute, who his truth changes. The word is he is mutable. I believe God is immutable, that he doesn't change because that's what scripture says. He does not change like shifting shadows. He, he is not one that uh, um, one minute he thinks one way and the next minute he thinks the next way. He doesn't do that. Scripture is clear about declaring that. And he declares that in the narrative form, which means just as I'm talking to you, that's how he says it. He goes, yeah, I'm love. That's it. There's nothing to interpret about it. It's, he's love. Then there is this, uh, for instance, queer theology. If you are gay... You look at the Bible in a particular way if you hold to queer theology. Guess what that is? Wrong. Yeah. They look at it as Jesus was gay. And they will develop a theology around that because they're coming from their own lens. Feminist theology. Feminists look at, if you're into feminist theology, they look at the Bible as a patriarchal society where men rule everything and they say God is not like that God is it can be feminine God can be masculine does the Bible ever refer to God as being feminine well some people might say well maybe as a hen broods over her chicks now is a hen a rooster no it's female right Okay, so you could go that far and say that, but God always calls himself the Father. There's the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no quote-unquote gender to the Holy Spirit, but God represents himself in the masculine form. But people don't like that. Even the newer version of the NIV, the NIRV or the NIVR, takes the masculine gender pronouns many times that are used in Scripture and changes them to a neuter pronoun like them instead of the men. You know, because we don't want to offend somebody because it refers to a patriarchal society. So if you're a feminist, you'd say, we need to change this Bible. God is not like that, and that's how I see it. And it's not what the Bible says, it's what they say. And in order to find out what the Bible says, you have to go back to the original language and see how the pronouns are used. See if they're feminine or see if they're masculine, right? And especially when it refers to God. Then there is the black theology. Are you guys familiar with black theology? 
Barack Obama holds to black theology. Now you tell me if black theology is Christian. <laughs> Absolutely right. <clears throat> black theology is not Christian in the Orthodox Christian sense. And so when I hear him say he's a Christian, I say I disagree with that because of what he holds to. And Reverend Wright, whose church he was in, and by the way, I'm not doing this as a way to attack President Obama. I have plenty of other things I could say about that, but it's just this idea of black theology, okay? The black theology is concerned about social injustice for the here and now and how it has to be corrected. What did Jesus say in the book of John about his kingdom? Is it the here and now, or is it not of this world? So if black theology says social justice for the here and now, what would the Bible say about that? What would Peter say if there is injustice taking place? Does anybody know the theme of First Peter? Persecution. If you're persecuted for doing what's right, is that noble in the eyes of God? It is. And it's noble if you bear up under it and you just endure it. If you are persecuted ignobly or for the wrong reasons, is it noble if you bear up under it? Would God look at you and say, I know this was unjust? And he'd say, it was so bad, you know, it just shouldn't have happened. And, or would God say, or you should, have, you should have fought to get out of that. Or you should have condemned those who did that to you. What would he say? If you can get out of it, great. But if you can't, it's noble to bear up under it. That's what he says, right? And so that, that goes with the theme of the Bible, but the black theology would say, no, we need to stop this now and whatever it takes. This would be some of the views that like the Black Panthers would hold, that we need to stop this election from taking place so that uh, a president who is black gets elected or a candidate gets elected who is black because we need to correct this social injustice. Or what was the uh, gentle giant you know, that was taking place there. The hands up, don't shoot, never happened. But this idea that there's so much injustice that we need to take the stand anyhow because it's the right thing to do, right? You ever heard that phrase? It's the right thing to do. And so you have a theology already, but we want to make sure it's transformed into theology that is biblical, that we're not using our circumstance to interpret what the Bible says. We let the Bible stand alone and declare its own theology. That's called biblical theology. Okay? So you guys understand this? Depending on your life experience, you could interpret the Bible correctly or incorrectly. Now I'm going to say one that is uh, it's a little more dicey. It is a subject, it's one of the two subjects that if you talk about in church, you could have people leave because they get offended. This one is about abortion. I would ask you not to judge this by your own experience, but to judge it according to the Bible. If a young girl is raped by her father and a child is conceived, is it morally 
according to the Bible, okay to abort the baby? No, it's not, according to the scripture, because that would be murder. Is it wrong? Is it heinous? Is it terrible? Should the man be incarcerated? Should he be killed? You know, all of these things. We struggle with these, right? But the scripture says, and it's the Ten Commandments. It falls under the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. And, you know, I recently posted something on a millennial blog uh, about abortion, pro-life. I said, let's see if I can recall it. I said that uh, humanity is not determined by the number of limbs you possess. Humanity, your humanity is not determined by your location. Your humanity is not determined by a malformation in one's body. Humanity is not determined by society. Humanity is not determined by humanity. I said this because uh, being pro-life, and I posted this on a millennial blog, and I was just waiting to see the responses. And somebody wrote, humanity is not determined by humanity. That's so stupid. You know, it's like they didn't get it. They, They don't understand that we as a society don't determine who who is human and who is not. And I knew I would be dealing with a a group of people that have little or no spiritual background. And so I wasn't going to go the spiritual route. I was just going to keep it in the physical route. And I ultimately said, humanity is determined by DNA. And I let that set there. And let's see what... One response was, I can't remember the response, but they objected to that, that you're not human just because of your DNA. And I would agree, you're not. You also have the soul. And that determines if you're human as well, right? And so we don't want to use our own experience. Like if somebody has had an abortion, they want to justify that. Most people do, that it was the right thing at the right time to do. But in God, God is 100% just and he will judge all such sins unless we repent. And then we have passed by God's mercy from judgment unto life and he covers over that sin. And that would apply to any sin, but it's difficult for us to do that, especially in our society today. If I went to a millennial blog and I said, homosexuality is wrong, what do you think would happen to me? They w- yeah. Where does this man live? You know, we want to track him down. And you can only say it so many places, but God tells us to be a witness of his truth, not what our opinions are, because our opinions, what do our opinions mean? Nothing. (laughs) A man who just went through inductive Bible study, the second uh, group of it here. So we want to make sure when we look at the scripture, we look at it properly. We don't even allow other people to influence us over the scripture. Now, the habit of most people is when you read a section of scripture, if you don't understand it, what do you do? That's right. You go to a commentary first, and you open up that commentary instead of doing the hard work and digging it up. You go to the commentary and just say, well, what do they say? Well, will a commentary by St. Augustine have the same weight or same interpretation as a commentary by, I'm going to give you a commentary, F.F. F. Bruce, who just 
was alive in the last century. No, it wouldn't. If you go to Matthew Henry, uh, that's a very common commentary which is out there, or you go to the pre-Nicene fathers like Origen, or Origen, would it be the same? Would they interpret it the same? No, they wouldn't. If I said the rapture is going to take place and there's going to be seven years of tribulation, would Augustine agree with that? And you probably don't know if he would or not, but no, he wouldn't agree with that. And so when did um, the idea of uh, premillennial, pre-tribulational return of Christ come into being? It was just in the 19th century. And that means or maybe around the 15th century. 16th century is when it started making inroads. But, you know, for... uh, 1600 years that wasn't even a solidified do- actually that was the uh, 19th century it was being saved by grace alone through faith alone that came in the 16th century and that was not part of the early church but yet we hold that as a cardinal doctrine of the faith today now everything that i'm telling you you may not e- even recognize half the terms and i understand that but all i want to do is expose you to these things and so we have filters in Calvary Chapel, <clears throat> we do things. I've given this to you before, too. All churches and all people interpret using four methods. Scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. So in Calvary Chapel, the number one is Scripture. We don't hold tradition over Scripture. If there's a tradition that's in the church and a Scripture says don't do it, we don't do it. Can you guys tell me a tradition which is out there that is contradicted in Scripture in a church that's out there? Yes. What is with the Hail Mary prayer? Okay. Okay. What if you go to confession and the priest tells you, say, Ten Hail Marys. You only need to do seven. Do <laughs> you guys think of any scripture that says, should you do that, should you not do that? It says, do not pray a prayer repeated. I'm going to use the... Uh, Bill's version. It it says, do not repeat a prayer over and over and over, thinking that the number of words will entitle you to be heard. You are only supposed, you're supposed to pray from the heart, from the spirit. You're supposed to open up. Now, does that mean you can't recite a prayer? Even the Lord's prayer is different from Matthew to Luke. It's not the same, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And by the way, it's different in the King James as opposed to the NIV. And so if you don't memorize it in the right language, well, I should go back to the original Greek. And if I say it in the original Greek, am I saying it right? Well, which version? You know, which gospel? And so you can repeat that prayer, but if you think you're going to be heard because of your many words, just the number of words, you're mistaken. And so that's why in Calvary Chapel we say, no, it's just what the Scripture says. If I'm doing something wrong, you go to the scripture, you say you're doing this wrong, I would say I need to change that, right? 
So practice, that's what we're supposed to do is go to the Scripture. Then there's reason. Secondly, we have to reason through the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the primary import of what the knowledge of God is. Secondly, we're supposed to reason through it, and we're supposed to use a multitude of counselors in order to do that. Then there's experience. Does my experience line up with what Scripture says? For instance, the practice of being slain in the Spirit. Do you guys know what that is? Some of you know what that is? It is where some of our more energetic brethren, they decide that the Spirit of God moves in us and takes us over completely, and we are out of control, and we fall back. You guys ever see Benny Hinn? Where he slaps him on the forehead, and two deacons are back there. They're supposed to catch him. And they go back and they fall down. Sometimes they don't quite catch them, but they go all the way down. They become stiff as a board, and that's being slain in the spirit, or they'll utter words that are just like out of control and barking in the spirit and all these kinds of things. That is out of control. Scripture says the spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets, which means you'll never be out of control if the spirit of God is leading and guiding you. And so you don't want to use your experience to say you need to get in step with the spirit And that's an experience that doesn't line up with Scripture. Then the last one is tradition. What's our tradition here? What? Where does it say in Scripture that we should have communion only on the first Sunday? It doesn't. Uh, But there are churches that say you need to have it every Sunday. And they say, as often as you do it. Well, you're supposed to do it often. And that's supposed to be every Sunday. And there's some people that they only do it Christmas and they only receive it Christmas and uh, Easter. That's the only time they receive it. Christ never gave us a time how many times. So we are free as often as we do it. We do it in remembrance of the Lord. <clears throat> so scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. We have those filters. But we will misinterpret scripture if we hold to our tradition, if we hold to our experience, and just to reason. Right? Then... <clears throat> Tools of interpretation. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to mention these to you. Of course, I. You guys have a um, Strong's exhaustive concordance. Yes. Who has one? Raise your hand. No, that's okay. One, two, three, four, five. <clears throat> uh, do you guys have Bible helps in your Bible? Who has that? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five. <clears throat> okay, those are tools. They're great tools. If you have a section in the back of your Bible, I have a Thompson chain reference. There's all kinds of scripture, and there's chains on subjects. You just go through scripture from scripture. There are other Bible helps. It tells me in my Bible where this Bible that I have right now comes from, all the, the manuscripts, where it came from. And so all of that, those are all helps we can go to. Then, now when it comes to the scripture, you said this already, Luann, when I gave you Ecclesiastes. What did you say to do? The before and after. A text without a context is a pretext. A pretext means you have ulterior motives, right? So if you just quote a verse and you don't give it in context... Kind of like in the election, somebody says something and it's not in context, you deceive yourself and those around you. You're not giving the proper interpretation. So uh, this is on your sheet there. 
read the larger context. If it is a smaller epistle, read the whole epistle. Read the text in other translations. Do translations differ in length? Or do certain translations contain omissions? Note the special emphasis or concerns. Make an outline. That could take you one to two hours. By the way, I got this in seminary. Secondly, read the passage repeatedly. Now, if you're doing a message, that's what Chuck Smith would recommend. Chuck Smith being the founder of Calvary Chapel. And confirm the limits of the passage. Uh, Third, make your own translation from the original language. Now, you might say, right, I don't even speak Greek. I don't speak or read Hebrew either. Uh, There are so many Bible helps out there right now. You can pretty much make your own translation from all the different Bible versions that are listed out there. Fourth, I'm sorry, make your own translation from the original language. Second was read the passage repeatedly. Uh, we're on four now. You know the different Bible versions? Do you know why there are different Bible versions? They're making their own translation. How often does language change? What does gay mean? If you were in the 50s, right? It doesn't mean the same thing today. And so just for that reason, language changes. The same words like if I went into the high school or the uh, middle school and I said, out of sight, what would they say? (laughs) Or what if I said, oh, that's totally groovy. (laughs) Yeah, you're laughing. What would they say? What? Yeah. And so our language, or if I said, Gnarly. Yeah, an LP. That's right. Oh, do you still have that reel to reel? They would have no idea, and that's just from one generation to the next. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah, that's right. So, also, that that's why we have different translations. I believe every generation needs a new translation. Yes, that means you go, for instance, if you open up the Amplified Bible, the Amplified Bible will have like the verbs that are in there or the translation of the verbs. It may give you two or three verbs in a particular verse. And so context determines interpretation. You have to get the context and you would pick one of those verbs, which one works the best, and they give you a choice. And so you, if you have a verse uh, that seems a little more difficult, like, for instance, the one in Ecclesiastes, Wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. Is money the answer for everything? You might interpret it differently when you learn the context and you would write out the verse the way you understand it. Like the NIV is a thought-for-thought translation. The NAS is a word-for-word translation, which doesn't translate all that good compared to the NIV. And so you want to make sure you're going to the to make your own so you understand it. You write it out how you best understand it, and it will help you. Because sometimes the verses don't give quite enough context for somebody to understand it, unless you've done all the work, and that's why it's helpful to do that. Then make it, and by the way, you wouldn't go out and publish your version, all right? If you don't know how to speak the language, 
You're just doing it for yourself to help you understand what's there. So you, you get what I'm talking about here? Not quite sure? Kind of a paraphrase. Yes. Yes. Well, like cliff notes. Right? Have you ever had a Bible study where it said, rewrite the verse the way you understand it? That's exactly what it's, it's asking you to do. Yeah, I want you to go to school, seminary, take Greek and Hebrew. No. Uh, make a list of terms. Now, for those ladies who are in the book of Mark, there is a key word that goes all the way through the book of Mark. What is that key word? That's right. That's it. Immediately. That word appears over and over and over in the Gospel of Mark. If you see a word repeating over and over and over, take note. Like in the, the book of uh, 1 John, five chapters, what would be a word in there that would repeat over and over and over? Love. Love, it's repeated over and over. And so if you want to know a little bit about love, you go to First John. That's where you go. Okay. Now, uh, syntax, grammar, and semantics. Now, this one's important. For instance, <clears throat> tell me if this needs a comma or no comma. Let's eat, Grandpa. <laughs> where does it need the comma? If there's no comma, what does it mean? Let's eat. <laughs> That's right. So you see the con- You have to have the right setup in order to understand it. You have to understand it in that way. I have another one. Rachel Ray finds comfort in cooking her family and her dog. That was on a magazine cover, and there were no commas. And so that's what it said. She... It's comfort out of cooking her family and her dog. Or uh, what about this one? Most of the time, travelers worry about their luggage. Or should it be most of the time, travelers worry about their luggage? And so if you are reading a text and you are aware of the syntax, if you're aware of the grammar, if you're aware of the semantics, if you're aware of the linguistics, all of these things are in the text and you have to read the text in order to get that. Now, in the English, we have exclamation points and stuff like that. In the original language, they didn't have that. And so you have to decipher. Now, most of you are not going to go do this, but I'm telling you, this is how you do it. You have to go back to the original language. You have to see how the verb is used and what tense it is used. Can you guys name tenses on how verbs are used? Yeah. Past tense, present tense, future tense. Have you ever heard of pluperfect? <laughs> so, see, th- there are different ways that a word is used, and you have to know that. And when you're looking at a particular passage, I mean, if you really want to dig, this is what's required. Most of the people just go, just tell me what it says, right? 
they don't want to do that. But if you're a teacher, you're going, no, I need to know this. I need to go back and find out. And by the way, most of this work you don't have to do. It's been done for you in certain commentaries. You can go to the commentaries, which are critical, and it actually divides up the Greek words, and it tells you what they mean and how they came to that conclusion. It gives you examples, not only other examples in Scripture, but also other examples from writings at the time the Bible was written and what it meant back then. And so all of that stuff has to be done if you're having a problem with a particular subject. Now, if you want to do it, I mean, it, it takes a long time to do this. And this is how we're supposed to interpret Scripture. Most people don't do it. They just say, this is what I think it means. And they write it out that way, and we could be falling into error and leading others into error. Sixth, examine the Old Testament parallels. Um, If you look at the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is famous for using parallels. If you read any of the Proverbs, and I I didn't list one down here, it will take two opposite things and bring them alongside and compare them. For instance, in use of metaphor or simile, uh, what is Jesus referred to as? Something hard and something you can throw. Rock. He's referred to as the rock, right? Is he a rock? No, but it's meant to communicate or convey what Jesus is like. If you look at the rock... Jesus is like the rock. But it's not a similitude or a simile. It's Jesus is the rock. So that's a metaphor. And so you have to understand the difference between metaphor and simile, poetry, narrative. Then there is consult commentaries as a secondary form of literature. So once you've done all this other work, you can look at a commentary. And then you want to make an application. So that's how you interpret the scripture if you're actually going to do the work. Now, Gordon Fee puts out a a book. It's called Biblical Interpretation. Do I think most of you guys are going to do this exercise? No. I just want to make you aware of what is required to get to the actual meaning of some of the difficult passages. It's not easy, but it is something that God requires of us. And you might say, well, did God list all this out there <clears throat> well no there are there are other things that we have to take into account for instance let's see if i have it here oh yeah i want to know if you guys have heard of these words all right a pericope have you heard of that pericope yeah you were in the men's where you heard it okay what about a midrash Something that's right here? No? <laughs> what about um, an anthropomorphism? <clears throat> See, all of these things help you to interpret Scripture. Like a pericope is a story that's in Scripture, and it has parameters. Like, for instance, the woman at the well that Jesus talked to, the Samaritan woman. There's a beginning and an end to that. It is called a pericope. And you have to be able to define where one thought begins and where that thought ends. Uh, I've mentioned this before. Patty has an NAS uh, Bible at home. Anybody here have an NAS? Do you have it here? Uh, pericopes are defined in an NAS by the bold type verse numbers. 
if you go into the Gospels, it will start with a, a pericope, will start with a bold number on the verse. And then it ends on the next bold number when you go there. At least the ones that I've been exposed to do. Yes? Is parables No? They do, but these are stories of things that took place. Like, for instance, um, uh, Legion. That's a pericope. It's a story. It has a beginning and it has an end. So those are called pericopes. Yeah, and so the reason you want to know that, the reason you want to know that is because you want to be able to interpret what's going on inside the story. You do go outside the story after you've finished the story, okay? Like the parables of the kingdom. Once you get into those, well, each one is its own individual story. You have the parable of the soils, which is the first one. Then you have <clears throat> the mustard seed. and I mean, you can just go through all of those, and you want to interpret the latter ones by the first one, but each one is its own story. And so, and you might say, well, why is that important? To get the context. You have to have the context of what's going on. Okay? <clears throat> now, let's see, which other one do I want to give you? A, a metaphor, a simile... Uh, poetry, uh, you can't into- interpret poetry literally. A narrative, you do. And anthropomorphism is where something is given a human characteristic. Okay, And you want to be able to make sure you're not going literal on that. That's where you would interpret it uh, in a non-literal sense. Okay, so now you have before you the task. Go to the second one there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. It says, And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. On the surface, what does that say? That's right. A woman has to have children in order to be saved. Now, this is where you first take the general view of Scripture. Do you think the general view of Scripture teaches that women have to have children in order to be saved? Something on here? I'm on. Okay. Is that what it means? Okay, but is that what it says? (laughs) You see? Now, ignorant and unstable people will take this and say, you better have some kids. If you don't have kids... There's no guarantee you're going to heaven. Now, I'm just, what do you think the interpretation of this means? Eric, you want to give it a shot? You may know, you may not know. I don't know. Say what Guzik says. Do you guys hear that? What he's saying is there will be a woman who will give a child and through that childbirth process, everyone will get saved. I believe that interpretation. I believe that's what it's implying there. It's not explicit, but it's certainly implicit. Now, the backing up, 
to Ecclesiastes. Feast is made for laughter and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. Does it say money is the answer for everything? If I as a faith teacher, would I... And by the way, the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrines which are out there, if you just have enough money, God has blessed you, and it's evident in your life. And therefore, if you just have enough faith, God can bless you. And according to this verse, money is the answer for everything, so get as much money as you possibly can, right? That's what it says. Anybody know what this means? For tomorrow you die? <laughs> All you need is alcohol and money and throw a party and it's going to be good. Now, does that keep with the general theme of the Bible? No, it doesn't. Matter of fact, if you're drunk, what does it say? It says you're sinning. If you are a drunkard, what does it say? You don't get into heaven. If you're a drunkard, that's what it says. If that's your life, if that's all you do. Like, for instance, Ronnie, who is out here, if you know Ronnie, Ronnie, he is always intoxicated. I've known him for years, and I've tried to convince him. You know, come on, we can get you in our program. He will not do it. And, you know, I've talked to him several times about this, but he just won't. And God says, don't act like this because you're deceiving yourself if you think you're saved. Now, going on with this, What does it mean exactly? Who wrote this? Solomon. Solomon. And what book? Ecclesiastes. What was the theme of his book? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Everything we do is worthless. If you read the entire book of Ecclesiastes, he says, you know, you store up wealth and then you end up giving it to somebody who's it's not yours, you know. You, you save it up for somebody else. And we're, this is all vanity. He goes, you, you build all these buildings and you're not going to be able to stick around to enjoy them. It's just a bunch of vanity. And he, he, what he does, it, or what he did, he did not withhold from himself anything that he saw. That meant women. That meant gold and silver. He was not to multiply either one. He was not to multiply horses. He did that. You have Solomon's stables. He did all of this stuff. So he's, he is going on a rant. And his rant is, a feast is made for laughter. And wine makes life merry. And money is the answer for everything. It's all vanity. In other words, you can do this stuff, but it's not going to amount to anything. And if you don't interpret it in the context, you're taking it out of context. And specifically, as he's talking, it's like money is the answer for everything. You can pay off a politician and get just about anything you want, right? That's what he's talking about here. It's all in vain. And not till the end of the book does he say, hey, these are the two things. Enjoy your work, your labor under the sun, and love God. Serve God. That's it. That's all you can do in this life. Says everything else is in vain, right? Okay, now how about this one? I have to look first. There's a sinner in here. Okay, First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse fourteen. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, is it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. What does it tell you there? Anybody with long hair in here? We're mostly going bald, aren't we? (laughs) 
Okay, what about a woman? Should she have long hair or short hair? Probably the longer the hair, the more spiritual, right? (laughs) We're in trouble. (laughs) You know, the same chapter says a man is not supposed to cover his head. There you go, Nate. Yeah, you You take off that ad. I want to tell you something. We had somebody going through the church at one time, walking up to men with hats on, saying, don't you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says you're not supposed to wear a hat in church? This is the house of God. How dare you sin against the Lord by doing such a thing? Of course, we quickly found out and grabbed the guy and escorted him over to the corner and said, you will not. And he goes, well, Scripture says what it says. And I actually gave this example of misinterpretation. And uh, this particular guy, and I was doing it during a study to the whole church, this particular guy became very disturbed, very perplexed. He didn't know what to do because I was showing all these errors in the misinterpretation of Scripture. And I came to this one, and it blew out of the water what he thought. This guy also thought that if you have enough faith, you will not die physically. Remember at the resurrection of Lazarus? If you believe in me, you will never die. Scripture says that. Do you believe this? Who was he asking that of? There were two women. Mary and Martha. They were there, right? So, if you have enough faith, he would say, you don't have to die physically. And I actually had to corner him and say, is that what you believe? He goes, well, what does Scripture say? beyond me it everybody dies right but he's trying to say if you have enough faith you're not going to die this guy was just way out in looney tunes and he was causing a problem inside the church he was misinterpreting what was there and so when he came back afterwards i said so what did you do with first corinthians corinthians chapter 11 he goes god is good i believe god it says what it says it's just you know banging my head against the wall trying to get this guy to see, no, you're misinterpreting what Scripture has to say. And to your own demise, people are going to think you're kind of crazy if you believe this. Uh, So anyhow, the woman and having long hair, uh, back then, I'm going to make this short. Back then in the Church of Corinth, there was a feminist movement, and the women thought that they were equal to everybody else, and they could do whatever they wanted to, and the custom of the time was the women were supposed to have long hair. That was for their glory. That was to their glory. That was a culturally acceptable thing. In the 60s, was long hair acceptable here? What did your parents call the Beatles? Long-haired hippies. That's right. I can remember driving through Haight-Ashbury with my dad who had a band lawn shirt on and his Territons rolled up in here and his Ray-Bans and his Brill Cream hair going over to the side and his arm was out the window and he's driving through Haight-Ashbury like this and look at these hippies. They should get a job. And we're all in the back and we had our Converse low tops on and we had uh, our plaid Bermuda shorts on and our white T-shirts and our Brill Cream hair and we're going, what's going on, Daddy? Oh, these, you know, we were so young at that particular point but everybody had long hair just laying around and doing drugs and and he didn't like it at all and the long hair it was not acceptable look at that mop and when you gonna get your hair cut you know he would always say he was a marine and he just high and tight you know and that's who he was 
And, and so we misinterpret what scripture has to say here. But these women, they were just out of control. They would speak up in the middle of service. And of course, Paul says, you know, these women ought to be quiet and ask their own husbands at home. They were out of control. And Paul was saying, look, does not the very nature of things tell you that this is how it's supposed to be? That, you know, if men have long hair, it's a disgrace. Do you think Jesus had long hair? Oh, no. I don't think so. Back in that day, it was a disgrace. Do you think he had a beard? Yes, it says in Scripture he had a beard. So he had short hair and he had a beard. But how is he depicted? He's depicted as a long, red-haired Irish man with a very sparse beard, right? He was Semitic. He probably had this full-on bush that was out there and his hair was probably short and he was a carpenter and he was probably five foot six to five foot eight he probably had a little bit of a nose on him because the jews you know the semitic nose that is there he probably had olive color skin he wasn't anything to look at he wasn't super handsome like they show him in the movies because scripture says that in the book of isaiah he was nothing to look at you know so he was just this average kind of guy a carpenter with a beard and short hair. And so we have this depiction in our mind of who Jesus was. He's always the most handsome in the movies, isn't he? He's always the tallest, head and shoulders over every... No, that's not the way it was in Scripture. But going on with this. First Timothy two nine, second from the bottom here. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair, gold pearls, or expensive clothes. Any of you shop at Nordstrom? Sinners. Everyone. Any of you women have gold earrings on? Jewelry? Oh, you, you're wearing gold on your hands? Any gold rings? Oh, anybody have braids tonight? Oh. Oh. Now, you see, there are churches where the women have long hair, They wear dresses high in the neck, low in the sleeve, low on the foot. It usually covers their feet. If not covering their feet, there are boots. And then there are leggings on top of the boots. And they, do you guys know the name of that church? What? The Apostolic Church. Apostolic Church is like that because they take this literally that you're not supposed to do that. And by the way, when you look up uh, the passage in a, uh, another, this same passage is repeated. It says, let their beauty not come merely from outward adornment. And so it gives you a full understanding, more full of an understanding of what the passage is talking about. <clears throat> Have you ever seen women that wear too much makeup? The hair is too high. The clothes are too flashy. I mean, That's what God's saying. Let the beauty come from inside. Don't take care of the outside and neglect the inside. That's what he's talking about. The beauty that comes from within. Concentrate on that. It's not the outside that's important. It's the inside. Um, Okay, we're coming to the end here. Yes. Oh. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Tell me what this means on the surface. 
I mean, you just read it there. It says, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. What's that? Do what alone? Pray. Is that what you think, Nancy? Okay. Do you guys agree with those interpretations? No? Do you guys know what it means? What's the context? Matthew chapter 18. Mmm, Steve Smart. <clears throat> That's right. And so the context of what is taking place here is if somebody has erred, if somebody has made a mistake, sinned against somebody else, <clears throat> and a judgment needs to be passed on them, they are unrepentant where the elders get together and they say, you know, we're going to have to ask you to leave the church. We can't have you doing this inside the church. You know, you've been coming to the church and you say you're a Christian and you're showing up all the time with these marks in your arms. You're shooting up heroin right before you come here every day. You know, we want to get you help. We want to restore you. But we can't have you fellowshipping with the body. Uh, we may allow you to come in and hear the gospel, but we're not going to allow you to interact with the body. Now, that is biblical to do that. And what is being said here is if the elders, the leaders of the church, establish a judgment, God is right there in the midst with them. Why does he say if two or three are gathered? If you look at the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, it always took two or three people to establish a matter. And they had to be reliable witnesses. And so in the context of bringing church discipline with reliable witnesses, if they make a decision, God stands behind that decision and says, there I am in the midst of agreeing with them. People have misinterpreted this and say, let's go to prayer. After all, where two or three people are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. It means God's, they mean God's presence presence is with them if there are more than two or three praying together in other words if there's corporate prayer god's there in the midst let me ask you if there's one person praying is god there in the midst yes, yes there is but they and i've actually had somebody at the church here try to convince me that you needed two or three people to make the prayer more effective what does scripture say about one person praying Say it nice and loud. Does it say of righteous men? No, it's singular, right? And see, that's where you look at the syntax and the grammar. It's singular. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I like the King James on that one. <clears throat> that's exactly what it says. And so it's a misinterpretation of the scripture. And this one person was coming up to me saying, you know, we need to have all these prayer meetings where we're praying together and we are the ones that are responsible for ushering in the return of the Lord. Not that we're going to change the time, but it will happen if we're doing it. And we're going, this is a non sequitur. No, this isn't how it happens. So what you believe determines how you act. If you believe crazy things from Scripture, you're going to dress in Farmer John outfit. You're not going to wear makeup. Hair is not going to be braided. And that's just the men. And then if the women, 
you know, the, the women, the, yeah, the poor women. And it was, it was a society that was just completely different from ours. And people get in trouble when they misinterpret the scripture. And I want to make sure you guys are able to do this. If you really sincerely want to do it, you have some of the tools now. And I can give you more tools to do that. But if you hear something and it doesn't sound right, it's probably not right because you too have the Spirit of God in you. And you can go, I, I may not know if this is right or wrong, but it just doesn't sound right to me. Okay? Any questions? Grammar. Grammar. You know, when I learned Spanish, I learned more about English. When I learned Spanish, and then when I got into you know, seminary, it's like, what well, it just opens up a whole, I never paid attention in school until I got into some of this other stuff. I'm just going, wow, would you agree with me? You learn more about your own language when you take another language, right? It's just phenomenal. Yeah. Parallels. That's correct. There, there, you, you know, the, I gave you, again, a truncated list of what's on here. There's also things like uh, the golden rule of interpretation. Do you know that, Mariah? No. I know your dad does. <clears throat> he can say the whole thing, but if the first sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you have nonsense. Right? <clears throat> and so if you're reading a passage and it makes sense that you're interpreting it a particular way, stick with the sense it makes. If it doesn't make sense and you hold to it, it's nonsense, right? Our God is a reasonable God, and he gives us things that are reasonable to understand. He wants us to know about salvation, our state, our origin, where we're going. He wants us to know what's going to take place in the tribulation. He wants us to know all that. And so he's not going to make it real unclear. He's going to show us what it means. He wants us to have the proper interpretation. There's also the law of first mention. Some people reject the law of first mention. That's where you look up a particular word or uh, something that's happening. Is that the first mention in the Bible? Is that the first mention in that particular book where it's mentioned? Like, for instance, I already gave you the parable of the sower of the seed in that the seed is given a definition by Jesus himself. It is the word of God. So when you go to the other kingdom parables, you know that when you have the seed in the other kingdom parables, it refers to the word of God. You know that if you have the birds, you go to the first mention of the birds and the sower of the seed, you know that's representative of Satan. Therefore, you can use that interpretation when you go to the other parables about the kingdom. So all of these things apply. And you might say, there's so many rules. How can I ever get, you know, just to the naked meaning of what is in there? Most of it is narrative. You just read it for what it is. If it's poetry, remember you have the indents in your scripture. It tells you it's poetry by how it's listed. Normally, the columns in your Bible are complete from side to side. If it narrows and it kind of goes in these different paragraphs, like in the book of Psalms, the lining up of just the text is different than it is like in the book of Matthew. 
it, it's different. It's a narrative. Okay, any other questions? You guys are full-on interpreters now, right? <laughs> what I like, the positive attitude. Okay, let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing on this information. I know, uh, Father, from my perspective, it can be overwhelming. But I pray that um, everyone would leave here with a sense of you want us to know what your word says. You have given us these tools. I ask, Lord, that you would bring to remembrance if somebody is having difficulty with a passage, you would bring some of these tools to remembrance. You would enable them to search the scriptures and know your will, just as your word says in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. So we can study to show ourselves approved. We know that this is your will. Help us to carry it out, Lord. Help us to watch our life and doctrine closely so that we may save both ourselves and our hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.